Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, for me, one of the puzzles of AI right now, it's a bit like the Fermi paradox. You know, like if there are all these amazing AI success stories to be found, why can't we find any? Like, where are they? I think some of them exist already and they're embedded into other products. So it's not like AI is this thing like a CRM system that, that exists and you can touch and feel or interact with it. Today, the mo- I think the most successful cases of AI are actually inherently Im- embedded into existing products and making existing products better. Right. So let's take Alexa. Uh, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Alexa, Google Photos, uh, the ability to the search engine with, within Google itself, right? The their AIs are better than that. So you're, you're basically saying that you know whether it's a CRM or computer vision or logistics optimization, we're, we're essentially using AI. We're just not calling it AI. Correct, and and the AI is pretty broad. So the more newer techniques around deep learning, reinforcement learning, which have gained a lot of popularity and, and attention. They're the most ad, more advanced types of artificial intelligence, but there's lesser forms of artificial intelligence like basic regression uh, or random forest uh, statistical methods. They are still learning algorithms of sorts, uh, just not to the sophistication uh, or unsupervised learning that, uh, that can happen with deep learning. They are more supervised, and so we have We've had examples of that for a very long time, right? So quantitative trading, right? Uh, we've had that for many, many years now, or decades, if you will. Uh, and they're run by, uh, by slightly simpler models. Now the, uh, we're getting to these higher order models, if you will, uh, and techniques that power things like the self-driving car, the um, Alexa, the voice assistants that we have, voice recognition, image recognition. I think they're all examples of where AI is in play today and, and doing a great job, right? <laughs> well, I'm uh, sitting have a cup of coffee in, on a very snowy day in Toronto with uh, Karthik Ramakrishnan, who's the head of industry solutions at Element AI, which is one of the world's, if certainly not Canada's, uh, most successful new AI organizations. Uh, you know, it's great to see you again, Karthik. I think the last time I saw you, we were in Montreal together. Likewise, yeah, exactly. Uh, we were speaking to a few of our colleagues in, <laughs> <laughs> at, a, at a common conference. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, and was, Element yeah, was pretty much brand new, uh, I, I think, when we got together. Yeah, we were just one year into our journey. Uh, now it's about two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, and I was into the company six months, so it was still very early days. Um, it was very early days for our clients, too. The conversations that uh, you know, we used to have two and a half years ago to the conversations we're having now you can certainly see a lot of maturity uh, that's that's come into play, uh, but uh, but yeah, that, that was a that was a fun. Well, what's the story of the of the foundation of the company? Like, who who were the key players at the, at the start? Jean Francois Gagnon, who was our CEO, um, had recently just exited um, JDA. So his previous company, um, which was in the uh, it's called Planora, it was in the um, supply chain space and using machine learning algorithms to do to do better optimization of supply chains. Sold to JDA, uh, he was head of products at JDA, um, and then decided uh, when uh, he'd, he'd always dabbled in machine learning in the past, and his co-collaborators were our chief science officer, Nicholas Chapado, 
and um, our, 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 essentially, if you will, our guru, uh, Joshua Bengio, right. uh, who's considered one of the, uh, uh, the, the godfathers of AI, if you will, for lack of a better term. Um, and so, yeah, they, they got together and started thinking about how uh, the machine learning talent uh, or artificial intelligence talent or deep neural network talent uh, was concentrated and getting further concentrated into these very large companies. Uh, and so we're talking about the Facebooks and the Googles of the world or Amazon. And who are notoriously paying up to $10 million a head for self-driving car talent. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of this talent getting concentrated into the hands of a few. And so the genesis was, how do we democratize AI and bring it into the hands of, um, uh, of, of other enterprises so they're not left behind in the process? Right. Um, and so that, that, that was the genesis, and Joshua, um, Dr. Bengio, certainly believes in, um, in getting uh, that talent pool and the knowledge uh, and the capability into as many hands as possible. Mm. Um, and that was the genesis. And then from there, uh, you know, we, uh, we grew, we raised a, a, a seed round, and then we went on further to raise one of, uh, I think, one of the largest A Series A rounds in, in the AI space uh, for about 100 Two million dollars US, and uh, and so from there, you know, we, we've grown to today about five hundred and fifty plus employees. Um, one of our biggest concentrations is how do we ensure that we can give? So we are very research based. So we, fundamental research is a core component uh, of our organization. So we've combined fundamental research. That's there's a pool of people who are continuing to advance the techniques within artificial intelligence. But you publish openly, right? And we publish openly. Right. How do you commercialize that, though? If, so we have another group of, of, of applied engineers and scientists. Right. And their role is then to take not just what's created internally, but also externally, and then produce products, end-to-end products around artificial intelligence. So it's less about the models. The models are great. So you need the models to power products, uh, so that's what the fundamental research team does, and then our our applied team uh, builds the products around them. You know, on the products piece, it, it's something I was wondering with regards to democratization, because you know there's one argument that you guys are increasing access to AI by allowing you to essentially rent the best talent, mm-hmm. you know, to create very bespoke solutions for a company. Then you've got sort of another approach, which maybe uh, is being driven by companies like. Um, Microsoft and Google in the future, where you're essentially creating AI platforms as a service, mm-hmm. where eventually you may not even need to know what a statistical model is in order to unleash um, fraud detection or pattern recognition. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when you think of an AI product, so let's talk about an AI product. What, what, what does an AI product look like? Right? Yeah. So let's take insurance, for example. Uh, you'd have, let's say you're automating uh, the claims decision-making process. Right. It's not necessarily automating the process where RPA is doing a great job. This is robotic process automation. Robotic pro- process automation. We're talking about the higher order decisions that a, that a claims adjuster would do um, in deciding whether to, to you know, uh, how to handle a certain claim. So that's a very human roles, role-centric approach to how we are thinking about products. So we look at the decisions that are being made in an organization and then looking to automate those decisions using probabilistic methods, right? Right. Uh, so now, going back to your question about you have these platforms, you have these models. The models, in our opinion, is only 20 to 30% of the product. The product itself is thinking through what is the interface? How do the humans interact with this machine that's helping them and augmenting their role in making these decisions? How does the data and the information get into it, out of it? 
how is the model continuously learning and improving its decision making over time as the underlying data so this, is, this, is, this is the customization essentially uh, you're saying no, this is where the value is created it's not customization though right so this is uh, that's part of our product itself so now we can take that product and deploy it into any insurance company right um, where it would ingest the data because it understands what that data semantically means um, from the way we built our, our product. How much yeah. customization on your end in mm -hmm. order to make it work with one insurance company versus another? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think it all depends. I mean, if you look at the Salesforce model, yeah. it's kind of like, well, basically you need to learn and adjust to our process. <laughs> yes. As opposed to we'll build you something SAP style just, you know, that works just for you. Right. I think we're going to be more somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, where I think we, what we, the way we think about it is more of tuning the product to meet the customer's needs, but also uh, we have an underlying philosophy of how the product's being built and how we think of that role, having worked and researched across multiple clients, right. to then say, well, we've gotten certain parts of it right and we think that should be standardized, and there's a certain part that we need to tune based on the customer's specifics, right? And that comes perhaps from the data or, or so, so somewhere else. So let's, let's look at the example of insurance, like what the infrastructure stack would look like. So you might. I mean, you might have all these policies that you've acquired mm -hmm. you know, from other companies, so you've got like a really ancient 1970s mainframe with all these policies on it. And then you'd have maybe a robotic process automation layer sitting on top of that, you know, uh, making changes to the policies and things like that. So what you're saying is, is on, on that level where you'd normally have a human being, uh, on, say on claims adjustment, you know I have a machine learning product, which is essentially learning to make that decision. Correct. Exactly, and 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 uh, you know uh, the, and then that's what the role of the adjuster is, right? So to say, well, this claim came in. Um, I'm now pulling up a policy. How does it match against the policy that you have that you hold? Uh, how do I treat your claim now? Whether I I, I honor it fully, or there's a copay, or whatever uh, specifics there may be, and then make a decision to say I will pay out X amount or or none at all, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so historically, that the, those decisions are stored within, uh, within within the company. So we, the platform would go in, understand historically how those decisions were made, mm -hmm. uh, and then automate as much as possible in the first pass. Then over time, um, it would start recommending decisions to the adjuster. The adjuster would probably say, well, yes, I agree with this decision, or I think it should be made differently, and as they tweak on the platform uh, what the outcome is, the machine is learning from that. So over time, it will start learning further um, how, uh, how that particular adjuster thinks about it, how the company's uh, adjusters think about it, because it's now going to work with multiple adjusters, and then provide essentially um, more automation over time, right? So, so, so in the third pass, you actually completely automate the decision. Correct. And, and then you manage the exceptions. Correct. Exactly. So I think where it's going to become interesting is, uh, you know, as you see more and more automation of these decisions come in, the complexity of some of those decisions, the most complex decisions, uh, will still require the human element, right? So the mundane decisions, the, the kind of routine ones, will be taken over by the machine. Mm. Um, once the adjusters trust the machine's output and decisions, um, they may say, you know, I don't even need those how, to go through an adjuster. How, how will an adjuster recognize that this is a tricky decision that, that's coming up? Like, I mean, you know, like what's the equivalent of the, the smoke pouring out of the machine and you know there's a problem? 
So it comes in the confidence intervals. So when the machine puts out a, puts out a decision, it says, well, I'm 42% confident that I have the right decision here, or I'm 95% confident. Right. So that's where you can tell that this is something more complex that the machine cannot handle, and I need to step in. Because it can't fit a pattern to it that's seen in the past. Correct. Right. Or, and then the other piece to this is, is explainability. So uh, the model should be able to explain, or the product should be able to explain why a certain decision was made and how it was made. Again, the adjuster should be able to look into that and say, well, based on these criteria, um, I think you're, making the, you're leaping to the wrong conclusion here. So even if there's a 95% accuracy, in the, I think in the first few instances, you'll have an adjuster going and verifying how those decisions are made. So explainability is a big need uh, within, within, these, uh, within these models. And then the confidence, confidence intervals uh, basically let an adjuster know uh, how well the machine's doing. So, so when you're approaching a company, is, is an important first step <clears throat> essentially charting out the topography of decisions? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this is what you're really targeting, isn't it? Like the, the, so the, the cognitive layer, whether it's in retail or logistics or manufacturing. So if, if you really look at it, any company can be broken down into a set of decisions it makes. Right. And every human being makes certain decisions. Uh, in their day-to-day jobs. So the collective decision-making power of that company essentially makes it a successful company if you have really good decisions being made collectively or an average or a not-so-well-performing company if those decisions well, are Actually, made. this is something Amazon uh, says explicitly. I think Jeff Bezos has said that his whole aim is to increase the velocity of high-quality decisions. There you go. Right. right? So if, those, if, if the quality of the decisions get better and better over time, and you now have a machine that can actually detect when good decisions are being made. Because once a decision is... And benchmark them. And benchmark them. So once a decision is made, how do you track how well that decision actually performed in the wild? And did it stand the test of time as a decision? Right? And, where did it, and when it doesn't, maybe it was a good decision for six months. And then month seven, that, the, that decision tends to fade or fail because of the changing environment and dynamics of, of the business environment. Uh, and is able to detect that and understand how these decisions should be made now and can probably put future forward thinking, well, how will this decision fare in seven months? And then maybe come back in seven months and then say, well, I'm going to tweak this decision now. Well, you can, you can certainly see that, that where that could apply to something like hiring. You know? mm-hmm. So your decision to hire a particular individual, you can track their career, their success. Uh, if they're in sales, it's directly attribu- attributable to, you, to your decisions. Um, in other areas... Uh, it's a little bit more difficult. How do you, how do you sort of quantify a, a good decision? So this is, again, uh, we are talking about a, a theory right now. Yeah. Right? So this is something that we'll, have, we'll discover over the next few years, right? Um, how do you do these things? I think these are the right things to do. But how do you create? This is why when I say it's not about the model, it's about the product. Right? The model is just a component of the system that you're creating Then we'll need to continuously keep iterating. Right. Most of the systems that we've built so far, rules-based systems, so your Salesforce or your CRM system, they're all rules-based. So once you break down a certain process and say, this is how these decisions are made, we capture them and we set it and lock it, but they're brittle. Right? And therefore, we, we go in this constant loop of having to upgrade or... Or, or reconfigure or re-put in a new software because it does things differently. That's changing with our algorithmic products. 
because they're going to be continuous learners just as humans are. Um, and so what that translates to essentially is uh, how they'll build, how they will be built, how will they be integrated into the, into the organization, how will they interface with the humans, how will they work with each other. So I might buy algorithmic products from five different companies. How do they talk to each other and how do they make um, synchronized or, or synthesized decisions across various functions in an organization? All of those things are, are uncharted territory today. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of the difference between um, deterministic rules and probabilistic rules. Correct. You know, because in a way, there are many companies today that are algorithmic in the sense that they have algorithms that have been programmed by people, set rules about what things should be done if then. Uh, but these new systems that we're talking about are reflexive. Um, mm -hmm. They learn from every subsequent round of decisions and then they can ascertain the success of those or not. So that's what we're talking about in terms of learning algorithms and, and learning systems. I think one of the biggest challenges right now in implementing this is you need enterprises to understand that aspect of, of what AI is. It's not necessarily, well, these today, most thinking around AI is, well, it can do speech detection, so I can do, have a chatbot. Or it can do, you know, I can... <laughs> I can have better image recognition, so I could probably put that in my ATM and I can recognize right. digitally the face of a person, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's gimmicks. They're important, I think, but, yeah. but, they're, or, but they're very... Or we anthropomorphize it. Right, but, but yeah. they're very... They're point solutions today. If we... What leaders need to understand is how is their organization going to change with these machines that are coming in that are going to augment the roles of the people inside the organization. And because they're learning, they have an ability to synthesize more information uh, than any one individual in the organization. They're going to be able to capture the best decisions and then consistently make those best decisions over time. Yes. Um, and once they're learning, how do their people then upskill or how does their role change? So there's a, a whole host of changes that are coming. I mean, let's think about that. So the, kind of the, the, if you're building the algorithmic organization in the mm -hmm. future, you know, your starting point is, okay, we are a machine for making decisions and, and we're going to implement technology and practices uh, and a methodology to get better at that, track that with time. Uh, so then what does your organization start to look at? Presumably you've got this massive data lake with all of your information centralized. You've got these learning algorithms. You've got your smart human beings who are working alongside these decision-making systems to train them. What else, what are the other pieces of the puzzle? The, um, the, the, the data systems, as you said, you know, how, how are they, so data lakes, I think the concept of data lakes is, is gonna go away, by the way, but that's a, that's a whole other uh, story, but. Um, Why? Uh, well, it's not about data. So we've been trained for the last decade or so that uh, data's the new oil, right? So gather as much data as you can, any and every data should be captured and put somewhere. Right. But the problem is it's now become a swamp, right? <laughs> so you, the, the big challenge right now is where does the data exist? In, like, in, in that it's not structured enough? It's not even structured. People have forgotten. Like people who put the data in have disappeared from the organization. Now, this is a very real example, right, of, of a company where they, well, this is the case of COBOL systems. So the, the, the people who put those systems in 30 years ago in a bank, first of all, very few people know how to handle those systems today. Um, the data nomenclature and the labeling is, is very esoteric. 
So it's not it's not descriptive. It's it's very you know A B C underscore one two three. Like what does that even mean? We don't know, right? <laughs> right. And and how is that data being used? Very few people in the organization have that knowledge. So um, the the point I'm trying to make is that the it's not about collect every and all bits of data, it's collect the right bits of data. So in order to collect the right bits of data, you need to understand what problem are you solving for? And then what data allows you to solve that problem? And then if, if it's an AI algorithm that you're putting in place, how is it going to consume that data? Then you go into, well, is this clean? Is it labeled? Is it structured? Whatever you need to actually enable that So you're saying the, the most valuable data is one that's been collected strategically with a purpose. Correct. Exactly. Right. Thank you. That was much more eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was a sidetrack I took you on. So we're talking about the AI organization, the future. So you've got your views around data and, and its targeted collection. What are the other pieces? I think your HR function is going to change significantly. If humans are going to become trainers of algorithms, they need to understand how these machines work. So I think they've got to be a lot more technology savvy than they are today. Right. It's not a one-shot thing. It doesn't necessarily mean they need to know how to program, but they need to understand the logic of stochastic models. or you know, Right, and how these things are built. Confidence. Confidence intervals. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, the, the data ingestion pipeline broke. What does that mean, right? So I think... What does that mean? Oh, uh, well, basically, there was a network fault, maybe. Right. Like, <laughs> the pipeline is like data, getting data from point A to point B, and it suddenly broke. I don't know. It's just like a okay, pipe okay. of water, and you need the plumber to go and fix it. Like, it's very similar to that. You, you might have you know, your data plumbers, but the persons who are managing these systems need to know the end-to-end configuration of what's happening. We, we, today, we understand very little about how the software works. It just does the thing, there's a page, I know what fields to input, I know what output I'm getting, and I walk away. And if it breaks, well, either reboot or call someone from IT, right? That, I think that's gonna change significantly. So now you have to talk about how do you retrain and create this knowledge awareness into your existing uh, pool of employees. So, so they need an awareness of, of, I guess, the logic of these systems. What else do they need? I think another big area is understanding how and where to apply AI. So today you have domain experts within the enterprise. They know what, they've been doing these jobs for a very long time. So let's just take a, a warehouse manager. Um, they've been using systems, rules-based, whatever they may be, and they know how the warehouse works and, and specifics of that company, how their business model works, and how the warehouse supports that business model, for, inst- for instance. Now, if you have this warehouse manager who now needs to think about how do I put an AI into this warehouse, they need to understand, they, they need to be able to break down these problems and say, well, I can put in an, um, an AI that can do X here. Right. Uh, why there? And so the universe of use cases that exist within that warehouse, folks need to be, the domain experts now need to have the knowledge to be able to uncover and define those use cases. Well, you know, back to our earlier discussion around decisions, I mean, they, at a more granular level, they need to be able to take a decision like, you know, merchandising or um, uh, inventory management and break it down into a thousand smaller decisions and know where the points where technology can best be implemented. Right. Right. And maybe it's not even that granular. I mean, I think I mean, the, the design the can be will depend on the use case itself. Yeah. 
But I, I think that that's another skill that uh, folks are going to need to have. So it's like, how do I transfer my domain experience and put it into this machine? This is something I actually wrote about in my new book, um, where I was saying, really, our job is in the future is not to work, it's to design work. Wow, that's, yeah. In that, rather than making a decision consistently, you should be trying to develop or train a model to essentially do that for you. That, that's the real value that you can offer as, a, as a human expert. Exactly. And then over time, think about this, uh, take 10 years from now, an organization becomes an algorithmic organization. Um, it's got a bunch of different machines um, that are making decisions and they've taken the mundane tasks out of, out of the human's hands. Uh, the question then becomes, well, you now have freed up time of your employees. What should they do and where should they spend uh -huh. time? Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and because I think- Because there are some, aside from their training work, Right. And, and, and looking after the robots, there, there, is a, there, there will always be a classes of decisions at that point in time which belong to humans. Correct. So today, we, I think a lot of our, like when complex decisions uh, come in, it overwhelms us. Like when we have stress at work, it's because we're facing a very difficult problem. Right. Right. We're stressed because, you know, we only have 10% of our time to solve that problem. Yeah. And the ninety percent, and our confidence in intervals are, are completely blown out. <laughs> right. So I think over time we'll have more time to spend on these complex problems, because the routine stuff has been taken off of our hands, and now we can make high quality, consistent decisions on these very complex problems. Uh, so stress levels may not exist. Uh, I think we'll always be stressed, but it's something we stress about. But uh, but I'm just saying, like I think the complex decisions will have more high quality decisions behind them. It'll be interesting how we develop a, a kind of a new language and a, approach to making those decisions too, because I think we will be influenced by this by our experience in training AIs. Uh, I mean, you see this at Amazon already when they they don't use PowerPoint and they use sort of structured six page memos. It, it's mm. almost like they've they they live and breathe data so much that it's it, it's actually infected their approach to even problems that are decisions that are not being made by computers. Right. I mean, I I read the maybe the same article or a different one, but essentially where pricing and merchandising decisions are now being made by algorithms. Yeah. The placements on the page are being made by algorithms. Uh, the the merchandiser as of today, does not exist in Amazon. Not just Amazon. There, there are a number of big retailers across the United States that are essentially replacing their merchandising departments because it's so hard. To, the complexity of the decisions is so great that, you know, it's uh, algorithms can, even today, do demonstrably a better job. Right. So now the question becomes, what are those merchandisers doing today? Mm. Right? So uh, I'm sure they're, they're being productive elsewhere and their time has been freed up. Now the question becomes, which are the most complex things we need to spend time on. Today, you can't separate it. I think it's a bit murky because you're clouded with all these smaller decisions. I think once it surfaces up, like here's the big problems but, where we but need I think time one, on. one thing is clear, you know, in a world where humans are spending their time focused on these wicked problems uh, or more complex problems, silos don't really make a lot of sense though, do they? They don't. So it's a great point. Today, I mean, silos in... <laughs> My opinion, silos exist because humans exist. Silos created are created by humans. And job titles exist because exactly. people want them. And so this is my job, this is my decision, and I, I put my arms around it, I erect some walls around it, and I live in my little, um, my little space, yeah. right? Because well, this is the flip side of decisions, is that um, we define our value by the, the size of the decisions we get to make. Right, and that's a very- What happens when you take that away from people? Uh, so 
I think it's, it's going to be about a higher cause. It is going to be about bigger decisions now, like even meta decisions, perhaps, right? right. Um, but to your point about silos, silos exist because the humans in one department, like our communication as humans is, is it's, it's very hard for us to communicate. I have to use my words, I have to use my facial expressions, I have to use my hand gestures, I have to put that into writing in an email and then convey with clarity my thoughts to you exactly as how I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and then you have to do that in reverse, right? And now think about that with a 20-person room or as I think Amazon says, like a pizza box room, right? The, the, I think the size of the teams are... Yeah, like, like, but, I asked them actually how, how many... Um, people do two pizzas feed because they, they weren't clear on that. Someone at Amazon told me it's about eight people. There you go. So presumably they're, they're pretty, pretty big pizzas. <laughs> or people are not that hungry, one slice each and that's it, right? But um, so, okay, fine, an eight-person team, it's hard for everyone to communicate in parallel exactly what their thoughts are, respond to those other thoughts that are coming from other people and having a seamless, non, uh, seam, seamless exchange that doesn't break down at some point. Now, that's very inefficient. When you have algorithms, if one algorithm is making one set of decisions and then communicates that to the other algorithm very, very clearly, well-defined, then you now have, I think that's how silos are gonna go away because over time, you're gonna be looking at an interconnected set of systems. So this algorithmic organization of the future is going to be not one or a thousand individual um, machines, but a set of interconnected machines. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.